Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. It's hot. Check it out. Um, somebody just walked in. It was Shannon. And she noticed that I didn't have my glasses on. And uh, she's like, where's your glasses? And I was like, uh-oh, where are my glasses? And so while you all were worshiping, singing in here, I was like looking all over for my glasses. I went out to the, the, the U-Haul truck, and then I was all over the lobby. I went to the bathroom. It's like, oh, no. I said, these people are in trouble because I, I can't see two feet without my glasses. And they were sitting right up here on the community <laughs> table. Check it out. So, you know, I, I sweat. Well, I'm already sweating. So, absolutely. That would have been embarrassing. Check it out. We're in a series called 10. Uh, we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And today we are on commandment number eight. Uh, we're going to look at um, the idea of not stealing. God commands us not to not to steal. One of the emphasis that the Bible has placed, uh, that the Bible places uh, within the, the commands is this idea of community, uh, of us relating to each other, of us getting along. Really, all the commandments deal with community. The first four uh, are oriented vertically. It's us in relationship or in community with God. The last six really are us horizontally in community relating to each other. If you think about it, the fifth command, honor your, your, your mother and your father, is, is really telling us to be in community, be in relationship with, with, our, uh, with our parents. The, the sixth commandment, uh, that we're not to murder anyone, really is behind that is be kind. Be kind with your words and also with your attitudes because we're in community with each other. Next week, we'll look at the ninth commandment that we're not supposed to lie to each other because that's the right thing to do when you're in relationship with other people. And today we're going to look at this idea of, of not stealing or cheating each other because if you're in a true community, a relationship with other people, that would, be not, that would not be the right thing to do. It would, it would be best for us not to steal or cheat against each other. Uh, and I think through this, God is showing us the, the importance of community. More importantly, what God is doing uh, as he's introducing uh, really, a relationship, a covenant with Israel is telling them that they are a community. They are a community of grace and generosity. And he, as he says that to Israel, of course, he's saying that to us as well. We're going to read, as we have done every other week, uh, all, seven, all, all 10 of the commands in Exodus 20. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. That's on page 73 of my Bible. I don't know if that will help you or not. Uh, probably not. If you don't have a Bible, down the middle aisle of seats are, are a few Bibles that you can grab. Uh, and that's going to be in the very early pages of that Bible. Uh, excuse the fine print. We're going to read verses 1 through 17, focusing in on verse 15. It'll be on the screen as well. And I'm going to ask you to help me by reading these out loud. Let's read together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath and that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, 
for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for a beautiful, warm day. We thank you for the creativity that you bestow on your earth in all of its grandeur and its beauty while it's Warm, actually going to be kind of hot here uh, on the eastern shores of the United States. Elsewhere, it, it, I mean, it's like freezing cold, perhaps even snowing. Um, Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your church. And as we gather to worship and to be a community of people, uh, we pray that you would impress us with your words and that we would uh, have ears to hear and eyes to see all that you would have for us individually, but also corporately uh, through this passage of Scripture as uh, you were reciting the, uh, your laws to Israel. Lord, Lord, pray that you would make us into a community of people, uh, a, a people that really wants to get along. Uh, and the only way we can do that is, is when we are submitted to you, when we uh, are submissive to your word and when we're changed by the good news of, of Jesus. And so do that in our hearing and, uh, and help us to live this out. And we pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen, amen. So the question in regards to this commandment, do not steal, is, I mean, how relevant is it for the day that, that we live in? Um, I think though we might not want to admit it, most of us in this room have likely struggled in this area this area of, of not stealing. Let me explain. Maybe you were a kid and you stole a piece of candy from the, you know, the corner store. Maybe you were a kid and you took a cookie when your mom deliberately told you no cookies until after dinner. And you got caught in the, in the process of chewing, munching that cookie, and your mom said, hey, you're not supposed to steal. The Bible says don't steal. Um, uh, Small incident from when I'm, I'm like seeing the scene in my head even right now. Uh, a buddy of mine, he lived like behind us and up the street a little bit. Uh, there was a corner store in my neighborhood, just right in the middle of my neighborhood. And this guy went, you know, we, we, we would always hang out at the corner store. That's when you could buy a, uh, a piece of gum for two cents. I don't think you, you can even buy anything for two cents anymore. Um, and so uh, he snatched something out of the store. It was a piece of candy. Brought it home. His parents saw him munching, knowing that, you know, he was too young to have bought anything and they hadn't given him anything. So mid-chew, like, they stopped him, they got in their car, drove back up to the, the corner store, uh, made him, they wrapped it up, made him give it back, 
and he had to apologize. And they paid for the small piece of candy that he had eaten. Um, I worked at McDonald's as a high school, in high school, for three years. That's why I love McDonald's even to the day. So don't hate on McDonald's, any of you, for their food or the calories or the cholesterol, because I don't want to hear it. I worked at McDonald's, and I love McDonald's. And so, you know, uh, I'm not proud of this, but, I mean, there was all kind of stealing going, going on in McDonald's, primarily, uh, not mon monetarily. People weren't trying to steal money, but because a lot of high school kids work there, you know, your, your classmate from high school would come up to the counter if you're working the register, or they would drive, come through drive throughs like, hey, Jeff, let, give me, let me get an extra cheeseburger, or let me get an ice cream cone. And I, you know, I can't say that I actually corroborate it, but <laughs> there was some stealing going on in McDonald's. Perhaps you're on the other side of this stealing equation, though. Perhaps you are a victim of stealing. Uh, my father was kind and generous. He bought himself... A, uh, a sports car when I was in high school, a Triumph Spitfire. It was beautiful. It was white. It had this black convertible top. Um, he let me drive it, you know, as, as sort of my car uh, to and from school. I decked it out like all high school students do with the loudest stereo that I could. And I was cool. I mean, I was like the, the talk of the school. Uh, the band had a trip one day, and I parked his vehicle behind the school. It's, I mean, there wasn't even a light back there. I don't know what made me do this. I was a high school student. I was stupid. And I come back from this band trip, and some vandal had like, like hacked up my dad's convertible and taken my expensive stereo out of that car. And I was devastated, and my dad took his car back. Um, in 1995, Larissa and I got married. We were stationed at Fort Bragg, and we had moved into this brand new condo that we bought. And six months or so later, I mean, we, we loved it. Had great neighbors, great environment, easy to get to work. And uh, one morning, Larissa uh, left the house about 10 o'clock or so. I think she went to work out. And coming back from that, the door of the condo was open. Somebody had broken into our condo. Um, we find out later that the neighborhood behind us was not the most reputable neighborhood in the, in the area. And uh, there were reports of just young, young kids going in, breaking into people's houses. And they happened to pick us, you know, this young couple, came in. They obviously were looking for something specific because they went in and took uh, almost all of our CDs. They were Christian CDs. <laughs> I hope they were blessed in the name of the Lord. Absolutely. But they did get Larissa's wedding ring, a wedding ring that as a young captain, I had saved a lot of time and money for. Um, and after that, I mean, we just felt violated. We felt unsafe. So what is stealing? It's what the Bible says. Uh, the Hebrew word for stealing is uh, literally means to carry something away as if by stealth. It also means taking something that's not yours without permission or right, especially in secret or by force. And so Obviously, stealing is an unlawful event. Uh, the big idea behind the Eighth Commandment is that if it's not yours and you take it, you've stolen it. Um, this, I mean, this seems pretty simple. We should probably just go ahead and move on to the, the, the Ninth Commandment, right? But as you've seen with all of these commands, there is a depth to this command. Actually, this command is pretty comprehensive. Um, this list is not exhaustive, but this is this list that I'm going to give you right here, and I'm not going to like even take a breath in between it. Uh, encompasses many of the things that uh, that we could find in our world, but also in Scripture that defines stealing. 
embezzling and embezzlement, unreasonably high interest rates, like when you buy a car on a used car lot and they charge you like 21% or when you're like in, like you need a credit card but you really can't afford a credit card and they make you pay like 25% for that credit card, unfair payday loan, don't you just hate those companies that, uh, that advertise on the radio that you can go and get your paycheck ahead of your paycheck and they charge you exorbitant uh, interest uh, to get that loan that you got to pay back, rigged gambling, uh, break-ins like uh, the one uh, that Larissa and I had in our condo where something is stolen, unjust taxation, burglary, larceny, hijacking. I, I'm, uh, I'm confused by hijacking because, I, I mean, what is the purpose of these people that like would go on a plane and try and take that plane and go somewhere? And it just doesn't make sense to me, like, if you, especially if you can't fly a plane. Shoplifting, extortion, racketeering, underpaying your taxes, filing false, uh, filing false insurance claims. Here's an interesting one: governmental waste and the exec, exce, uh, excessive national debt. We are our, our debt, our national debt is just crossed over 19 trillion dollars, and so in a sense, our government is stealing from itself. It's, it's stealing from us. In the, in the sense that we have an excessive national debt. We live in a bureaucracy. And I tell people all the time, because I was in the Army, and I know this firsthand, the government actually is not trying to save money. It's just trying to make it work, trying to make it operate, uh, and not necessarily more efficiently. That's just the truth. Falsely billing a client or an employer. There's two things there. That's, that's if you are an employer, uh, to have a client and to build them perhaps more than they, they should be built. Think of, uh, I'm, I shouldn't say this, lawyers. Um, <laughs> or if you are uh, an employer, uh, or if you're an employee, say you get a, a reimbursement for travel or for something that you're doing outside of your, your normal work, and you throw an extra receipt or something in there, both of those are appropriate here. Misappropriating company funds, killing time at work, playing cards, surfing the internet, reading a book, talking on the phone when you probably should be just like working. Not paying your employees if you're an employer, taking supplies or stock goods from work, taking actual property, plagiarism, illegal downloads, identity theft. <sighs> I mean, that's a lot, right? I'm not done. Technology in our day has like thrown this this opportunity for stealing and taking stuff into, into overdrive. It's, just, it's like an endless ways and means of stealing stuff because of the technology that we have in our day. Uh, ours is a culture that celebrates the, the internet hacker. Think of the uh, you know, Target last, was that last year? Last summer when uh, thousands of people's personal records and credit card numbers were stolen because hackers hacked into Target's system. And you've had banks and, and other um, financial in, uh, companies in the financial industry that have been violated through internet hackers. Ours is the culture where software is pirated, not just that, file and song sharing, illegal downloading of songs and movies are as, as prevalent as us coughing with a cold. Um, what about the guy who works at one of the big box electronic stores, like a Best Buy or something, H.H. Uh, H. Gregg, and they, they, they get their stuff on an employee discount, so they buy a whole bunch of electronic stuff, and they go and in turn sell it on eBay at a higher cost. Y'all know that's going on. It's going on all around us. 
Uh, I think we're always looking for a scam, a way to work around and through the system. And this, I mean, this should be sad to us. It's not just trying to get ahead. It really is a condition of our heart. And that's where the Bible takes this. This isn't, uh, this isn't us just trying to save money or be efficient or, uh, you know, doing things to, uh, to get ahead. Really, it is the condition of our heart. So what does God have to say about stealing? Every directive in regards to stealing in the Bible uh, comes from the perspective that God is the owner of everything. He owns everything, even you. The creation story in Genesis 1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. The psalmist says in Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. One of the greatest prophets for Israel was the prophet Samuel, and in his narrative, First and Second Samuel, which really tells us the beginnings of the nation of Israel, their kings, King Saul, King David. Uh, Samuel was born to uh, a barren woman. Uh, at least she was barren before she had him. And Hannah prays this prayer after she has him and prays to the Lord. She said, it's the Lord that makes some poor, but also makes some rich. Uh, of course, you know the story of Israel. Uh, God brought them up to a land that he was going to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. He promised to bring them in the land. They didn't have faith to go in the land, and so he made them walk around in the desert for 40 years. And at the point where those 40 years were over and he brought them into the land again, uh, in Leviticus we read, um, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. You're strangers and sojourners with me. So God is... is he said, you know what? I'm going to give you this land. Actually, I'm going to help you defeat all the, the enemy persons that I don't want to be in your land for you. But make no, uh, make no doubt about it. The land belongs to me. You're just passing through. So in terms of people's relation to God, definitely Israel's, but also ours, we're not owners. We're stewards. That word, that, that word doesn't actually uh, appear in the Bible, but the, the metaphor of steward, the concept of being a steward is really is from beginning to end in the Old and the New Testament. Here's what a steward is. A steward manages goods that belong to another. And if you're a Christian, the, uh, the another, you should see that as being God. A steward is someone who cares for property that's not his own. He takes care of someone else's interest, which means he's not free to use it or do with it whatever, however he pleases. But he's supposed to only manage it in accordance with whatever the intentions are of the master that actually owns it. And so this metaphor uh, in the Bible commends us uh, to, to see life as we, really all the stuff that we have, I would, I would say even parents, to include your children as uh, being part of God's provision for you, as being his blessing toward you that you're supposed to steward. This does not mean that God is against ownership. Uh, as, as we relate to each other in community, you to me, uh, if I have some clothes on, these clothes don't belong, well, unless I borrow them, they don't belong to you. What's mine is mine. But in terms of uh, how God sees the world and how he sees us, everything belongs to him. And we are just stewards of it. Whatever we possess is God's property. And he's given us really the sacred trust of looking after it. So what does it, what does it mean to be a steward? To be a good steward means uh, a couple things, several things. First, it means taking care of what you've been given and not letting things fall into into disrepair. 
I mean, I mean, do you have do you have that much care for the stuff that God blesses you with? Do you, do you see it as this is mine? I can do whatever I want to with it, or do you? I mean, do you hold your stuff loosely from the perspective of, you know, God has blessed me with this, and He actually can take it away if He so, if He so chose to, uh, to do so. I think it means not being wasteful, uh, particularly with our money. When we squ- when we squander money that could be better used for something else, uh, in a sense, we're guilty of of theft. Uh, we're we're, we're uh, we're squandering not just our money, but the thing that God has blessed us with and that ultimately belongs to him. I don't want to be legalistic with this, but I think uh, one, of the, one of the biggest ways that America wastes money is through the gambling industry. Uh, I am told statistically Americans spend more gambling than we do on food and clothing in a, in a given year. I mean, can you believe that? And so there's no... There's no chapter and verse that says don't gamble, but if you see the provision of God and what he's given you, then you would be careful uh, not to squander all that away. Is it wrong to have fun? Absolutely not. That's a part of this, that's a part of this command, that we should enjoy uh, the, the things that God has provided for us. But I think as we look at the ramifications of what God is saying here, uh, that, that from his perspective, perspective, everything belongs to him, then we have to, I mean, we should think through uh, a little thoroughly before we have a little bit too much fun with the stuff that God has given us. Stewardship means um, taking care of what he's given us. It also means working hard. There's a clear ethic of work in the scriptures. When God created Adam, he gave him the mandate to work. Uh, And this work, this calling to work comes to all that can work. It's not just those who uh, or are of lower income or of a certain ethnicity on the lower end of the scale that are supposed to work and they work for the man. They work for someone who has, has it all. The command to work is for the wealthy and those who, who lack. And here's the perspective. We're all stewards. And because we're stewards, we don't work for ourselves to get more. We're working for God. Jesus in Matthew 25 tells the, the, the parable of the talents. And uh, he says there's a man who owns some stuff and he gives five talents, two talents, and one talent to several people with the uh, assumption that they're going to invest those talents and that the, the manager is going to come back at some point uh, expecting fruit from what they've done with those talents. And so the manager comes back uh, the, the one that he gave five talents to doubled it. He multiplied it. He now gives him 10 talents. The one that had five showed fruit of four. But the one that only had one talent, like stuck it in the ground and did nothing to it. And Jesus rebukes this one. He says, hey, uh, didn't you know that I expected a return on what I had given you? And so the, the lesson that we learned there is nobody can just bury their talent in the ground. The Bible makes a clear connection between laziness and stealing. This is probably the other end of the the ethic of work in the Bible. If the Bible says that if if God's purpose for us is that we would that we would actually labor on his earth, then the opposite extreme of that doing what God has not said to do would be to be lazy um, and to steal. Uh, Proverbs teaches us a lot about laziness. Uh, Here's a couple examples. Proverbs teaches that laziness can lead to poverty. Proverbs 6, verses 10 and 11 says this. Do I have that? 
I don't have it. I got to look it up. I got to do the old, old school thing of actually turning the pages of my Bible, folks. Y'all are putting me under so much pressure. Verse 10, a little sleep. You've heard this. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The prohibition there, I mean, don't be lazy. It's okay to rest, but if that's all you're doing is rest, then at some point poverty is going to jump all over you and it's not going to let go. Uh, here's another proverb. Proverb uh, 30, uh, verses 8 and 9 says, uh, uh, it, it says poverty, in, in a sense, leads to a prohibition, uh, uh, an opportunity to steal. Uh, Proverbs 30, verses uh, 8 and 9. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest or else I'll be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Here's what the Bible says in, in, uh, in uh, rather than letting poverty overcome you because of your laziness. It says in Ephesians 4, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. I would beg to say that this is saying the stealer becomes someone who doesn't steal when he has employed himself in a work that profits him, but more than just profiting him, it profits those who are connected to him, those who are in the community, those who are in relationship to him. And I think this last point is important because this is what the command is bringing out. Uh, in a sense, the last six commands are, are Jesus sums up by saying, this is the greatest command. Um, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love those who are in community to you. And so uh, Ephesians 4 brings out the, the community aspect of, of this command. All the six commands are talking about loving your neighbor. One of the ways that you can show love to your neighbor, think about it, is don't steal from them. Don't cheat against them. Don't steal because that would be harming them. That would be hurting them. That would be taking what's theirs and making it yours. And in a sense, you, when you steal, cheat, harm them in that way, you have assaulted God's very provision for them. Here's the summation of what it means to be a good steward for us. It's to live a generous life. That's what God is, 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 is bringing us to. If God is uh, prohibiting us from stealing, but in, instead uh, encouraging us to be in community with other people, then the, the thing that he wants us to do is to be generous toward other people. And God doesn't provide for us solely for ourselves. If you're in community with people, uh, God's purpose for your provision and really for your wealth and your health would be to, to satisfy you, but also provide for other people. And I think that really is what it means to be in relationship, in true community with other people. And again, that's not to say that you can't enjoy, that you're not supposed to enjoy the things that God blesses you with. Um, if you are a good steward, then you're going to amass things. You're going to have stuff, and God blesses you to enjoy them. But Christians who are as wealthy as we are, especially in America, in the Western world, uh, should be thinking of ways that we can not just hoard to ourselves, but also give to benefit those 
around us. And here's where the Bible says we should start with that. We should start with our family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, say relatives. relatives. Y'all didn't say that. This verse is, some of y'all, I mean, this verse even hurts me. I mean, look at it. If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Paul is pressing Timothy, and this is a section that he's talking really about the household of faith as he writes a letter to, to Timothy, encouraging him as he's leading a young, a young church there. And, and he's saying we have a responsibility to those who have blood relationship to us. And some of you are, have families that you don't talk to at all. And this verse is, is not relieving you from the responsibility, at least a little bit of responsibility, to, to see how you can care for those that God has, has raised you through. And especially those who are actually living with you. Because if you would deny those people, then you are actually living like an unbeliever, worse than an unbeliever. Beyond that, it should extend to your church and the global work of the gospel. What does that mean? That means that if you have uh, partnered, come into covenant with uh, Christ's body, the church, the church is not a building, it's, it's people, then uh, God blesses you to, to be a part and to lend uh, financial and talent blessings that you have uh, for use by that community of people, by the church. Finally, it reaches out to the poor in our community and around the world. Did you notice that order? It said, my relatives, those living in my house, then my, my greater community, the church of Jesus Christ, giving our money for the advancement of God's kingdom by the gospel, and then those who are poor in our community and around the world. I think sometimes as Christians, um, we learn that the most effective use of my uh, money, of my resources, of my talent, is to go and send it give it to overseas missions and, and, the, and the poor. And, and this would challenge that, okay? I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, I'm saying, but God does give us some order here in how, you know, what we're to do with what he's given us. Here's an important question to ask in regards to this commandment. Why do we steal? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be here for like two seconds. Why do we steal? Um, I think this goes back to really how we began this, this series. When we look at the first commandment, um, you know, when we break any of the commandments, it all goes back to that first one, idolatry. God says, I will not have you worship any God except for me. And when we put anything or anyone uh, over our worship of God, we have created an idol. And we can have all kind of things in our lives that are idols. We can have people, our houses, our kids, the furniture in our house, um, our jobs, uh, relationships, all those things can be idols. And perhaps one of the reasons why we steal something is because uh, it almost always plays the role of God in our life. A God is anything that you feel like you have to have in life to be happy or secure. A God would be that thing that you say, I actually need this to be content in life. And so one example, when you steal money, it's because you think that that money is essential to you. Uh, it's something that you really need 
in your life. And so you go through the process of stealing it. You say, you say to yourself, I'm not going to be happy. I, I got to pay my bills. If I pay my bills, I'll be happy. I'm going to go figure out how I'm going to steal this money. And you do it. But when you steal non-monetary things, perhaps really it's the same reason. Um, let me give you another example. When you steal credit that doesn't belong to you. You guys remember the... Uh, the fiasco with Brian Williams, the, the anchor of NBC News last summer, when uh, Brian, of, of course, uh, I, I love NBC News. I'm an addicted. That's one of my addictions. I, I mean, I'm checking the news all day. I actually sit down at 630 through 7 o'clock, through 730, and I watch two network newses just to compare what they're saying about the world. And so last summer-ish, um, Brian Williams was recounting a uh, a time in 2003, 2004, when he had deployed uh, to Iraq during the beginning phases of Operation Iraqi Freedom, and he was on a Chinook in a, in a convoy of Chinooks, and one of the Chinooks actually hap uh, got uh, shot at by an RPG, and over the years, he started connecting the story uh, un inappropriately, inappropriately. He mis misrepresented what had actually happened to his Chinook. He said that he was in the Chinook uh, that had gotten attacked by the RPG, and uh, the military guys that were flying that plane, I mean, they like, like, they, they embarrassed him. It's like, you were not in that aircraft, sir. You are lying to the American people. Um, what was going on? I think Brian Williams was trying to beef up his reputation, and that's stealing. Why do we do that? Because we want people to think well of us. Brian, Brian Williams, probably one of the most highest paid people in the world, anchor of one of the, you know, a, a nightly news show, and for whatever reason, he, he beefed up his reputation by saying that he was shot at in a, in a Chinook by an RPG. He didn't have to do that, but he did it. And I think we have those same um, proclivities in us to do that. Stealing ultimately goes back to the fact that most of us are deeply dissatisfied people. We're not content with what we have. We want more. We want more position in life. We want more money. We want more honor. We wish that we were more talented. We want more emotional fulfillment, more sex. I mean, the list could go on. And when we don't have that, sometimes we steal. So here's the question I want to end with. How can we change? And we're going to go to the New Testament. A funny story about a man named Zacchaeus. <coughs> Zacchaeus. Uh, Luke 19, I'm going to read these 10 verses. Uh, he entered into Jericho, Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in, the, gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I have given to the poor, and, I have defrauded, and, and, I, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save uh, those who are lost. Several things uh, that I want to point out here. I'm going to reduce it to four. Here's the first thing. Zacchaeus was the worst of sinners. I'm stealing that from what Paul said about himself. But, Zac I mean, obviously, Zacchaeus wasn't, 
he, he wasn't trying to kill and persecute people like Paul was, but he was close. The, the, the text tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and that made him the, like the scoundrel of all scoundrels uh, amongst the Jews. Um, he, he was in Jericho. Jericho was probably the most affluent, you know, it, it just had a lot of things going on in it. And so uh, a chief tax, let me back up. So the Roman government, when they would come and defeat a, a city or a nation, when they come to overtake a people's they would come in, they would bring their army, and they would seize them, they destroy them uh, by fighting, and then they sort of just took over. Uh, and then they would tax them to make the, themselves, the Romans, and the, their leaders wealthy. And instead of taking uh, Roman officials and putting them in a particular city, they would take willing people, willing natives. And obviously Jericho belonged to the Jews. They found men who were willing to be tax collectors, and they used those men who knew the society, who knew the people, uh, to really to to scoundrel uh, families and friends and the population out of their money. And so to be a, a, a tax collector amongst your own people, I mean, you had to be decrepit because here's what Rome did. They said, all right, we're going to exact this amount of tax from the citizens. Anything over that you can keep. And so it was an incentive for a tax collector to I mean, to hit the people hard. And so that's what Zacchaeus would have done as a chief tax collector. That means he would have been the head over several other subordinate tax collectors in an affluent, thriving city like Jericho. And so that meant Zacchaeus was, I mean, he was cheating against his friends, those he had gone to high school with, his family, and everybody else that he knew. Can you imagine a worse person in the Jewish culture than someone like Zacchaeus. He wanted money so badly that he was willing to really sacrifice his family, his friendships, uh, his own integrity to get more money. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus did. So here's the second thing. Zacchaeus comes to Jesus. We see this in verse 3 and 4. Um, I love, this is the funny part. It might not read through the text. Um, you ever notice how um, short people, I mean, if, if, if you're in a crowd of people, the short people somehow like, like squeeze through and make it up to the front, right? That's what they normally do for y'all that are short. Do y'all do that? Yes, y'all do that, right? So you can get in front so you can see. And so Jesus is coming to town and Jesus is popular. Everybody wanted to see him. They wanted to hear him. And that's what, uh, that's what Zacchaeus is doing. He wants to just see this Jesus that everybody's talking about. Hear his words, and Zacchaeus is probably short, maybe even shorter than four foot. And he's probably trying to squeeze through, and the people won't let him. Why? Because he's a scoundrel. It's like, you're a, you know, you're a wee little man, you scoundrel, you pig. Y'all, y'all know the song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a, play the song. Y'all know this. Play the song, David. You got to actually play the song for them to hear it.
right, go ahead and cut it right there. I'll, I'll, I'll save you. That's like 30 seconds of your life, and you're not going to get back. So some of y'all tonight, before you go to bed, you're going to be singing that song to your kids. Like, yes, was a wee little man, a wee little man. So they're not letting him in. So what does Zacchaeus do? He climbs up in a tree so he can see Jesus. Um, here's, here's how most people come to Jesus. They come in a crisis. All right. Stuff is going wrong. Uh, you've messed up and your spouse is about to leave you in a marriage. You're in a relationship that's gone awry. Your money is funny. You just need some help. Um, you know, all kind of crisis like that. I mean, and it brings us to Jesus. Here's the problem with coming to Jesus in a crisis, coming to God, coming to church in a crisis. It doesn't mean that God's not going to meet you where you are. In fact, we sing this song, you know, in, in gospel church, Jesus will fix it. Sometimes Jesus fixes our problem despite us. But oftentimes when we come to Jesus in a crisis, the problem gets fixed and our faith just like gets just like leaves. You don't come to church anymore. Right. That's not Jesus. Is, uh, Zacchaeus is not coming to Jesus in a crisis. Zacchaeus may have a crisis, but it's not a financial crisis. And, and he's already forsaken all of his rel- relatives. If there is a, a crisis at all in Zacchaeus life, it's, it's simply this. He realizes that what he's given his whole life to this being a scoundrel chief tax collector uh, won't satisfy him or save him. Uh, Zacchaeus had lived a life of of materialism, of cheating, of exploitation, because he thought that money was going to be his happiness. But then at some point he realized, you know what, I can't take this to the grave. And then he met Jesus. He sees that his life can be more than just the money that he's amassed. He realized that he's built his whole life on something that's worthless. He recognizes Jesus is the only God worth living for. That the end of life really is more than just the amassing of things, of money, of, of affluence or acclaim, that Jesus is the end in himself. Here's the third thing that happens in this text. Jesus enters Zacchaeus' life. Verse 5 and 6, here's the reference. Um, I'm going to read this because this uh, there's an order to what's happening here. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he heard and came down and received him joyfully. Here's the order that's going on. In that day, to eat with someone meant that you approved of who they were and that you were making them an intimate friend. That's why the tax collectors, uh, the, the, the text says, they all grumbled when they found out that Jesus had actually eaten with Zacchaeus because it sort of signaled that he approved of who Zacchaeus was as a man, his character, uh, and, and the like. And, and here's what Jesus does. Jesus chooses to eat with Zacchaeus before he cleans his life up. Jesus says, come down. I'm going to eat with you in your house. He goes to eat with him. And then he announces uh, in, a, in a lot of part of the text, salvation has come to your house. Jesus is showing Zacchaeus really the difference between the gospel of grace versus religion. Uh, and here, here's the beauty of this. Every other religion says that you got to do this or be that before you can have any relationship with God. It says, clean yourself up, uh, do this penance, recite the rosary, do good, be good. That's, I mean, you know, that's why the Mormons are so such clean-cut clean, clean cut people. It's, they, are, they are a works righteousness people. They believe that if they are good in this life, they'll be rewarded in the next. 
And in this text, Jesus shows Zacchaeus the exact opposite. You don't be good to earn God's favor or to get him to come to your house. God comes and brings salvation with him. And when he brings salvation to your house, all the other stuff comes as a result of that. Your life cleans up as a result of Jesus bringing salvation to you. You change as a response to the salvation that's come to you. And that's an important order. Fourthly, Zacchaeus changes. Verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to him, Lord, the half of my goods I have given to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, this is a massive change. Uh, the Levitical law would have required Zacchaeus to give back 20% in restitution for anything that he had stolen or taken, taken uh, inappropriately. He says, I'm going to give back fourfold. And then he says, on top of that, I'm going to give back I'm going to give away 50% of all that I own. And he would have been a very wealthy man. 50% of all that I own to those who are poor. And so what we see here, I mean, Zacchaeus has changed. And it's not just been a head uh, or an external change. It's a change within his very heart. And really, the only thing we can attribute to this is that the money that he sought to give him a, a claim and affluence and status in life no longer had a hold on him. I mean, he somehow was able to let this go. He had found a greater treasure. And what was that treasure? The moment that he spent with Jesus. We don't know how long Zacchaeus actually spent with Jesus, but we do know that however long that was, he experienced, I mean, a little bit of Jesus' glory and a lot of his grace. He set him free from the love of money. And so, I mean, how, how does a thief's heart change? If you have stolen from God in any way, how does God change our heart? I think it's this. You embrace the grace that, that Jesus gives to you, that you, you embrace the grace that he's already given to you. In this story, before Zacchaeus changed, Jesus came to his house, and with that, he brought salvation. And he's bringing that to us just like he brought it to Zacchaeus. But here's the thing with Zacchaeus and also with us. You have to choose to let him in. Did you see that in the text? Zacchaeus chose to let Jesus in. In other words, he received the, the salvation and the grace that Zacchaeus actually offered him. And he offers that to us as well. He offers to forgive you of your sin. He offers to unite you to himself and to put you under his eternal protection. And so here's the question for us. I mean, it is simple. Have you received? Have you received the salvation that Jesus freely offers to you as he comes to your house? And more than that, will you let him come to your house? And so if you're not a Christian here today, uh, you can do that right now. You can say, Lord, you know what? I've stolen from you. I've stolen from you my time and my talent. I've robbed you of, of all the, the stewardship that I have been, I should have been giving, giving to God because I live on this earth, and I want to repent. I want to turn from that, and I want, to, I want to come to you. And the Bible says that Jesus will come with salvation to your house. You see, the, the Eighth Commandment says that we should not steal. And unfortunately, we steal in all kinds of ways. The Bible says we, we rob God. That's from uh, the, the verse in Malachi, Malachi 3, 8 and 10. 
Um, Malachi was one of the, the last prophets, and uh, he had this, this specific verse. Read, uh, let me show that, show that verse real quick. Will a man rob God? Will you, uh, yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with the curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. This is a rebuke to the nation of Israel. But the full tithe into, uh, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This isn't a sermon on giving and definitely not on tithing, but one of the ways that we steal from God, the Bible says, is that we rob God because we don't give him portions of what he's blessed us with. And the way the Bible uh, articulates that is, is through the tithe. The tithe is an Old Testament concept for sure, um, but many would say it doesn't go, go away in the, the New Testament. What's tithe? It means 10%, okay? And God is not after percentages, uh, for sure, but uh, as a church, I would tell you that we recommend that as a minimum, Christians think about uh, apportioning the blessing monetarily that God has given you uh, in return to him as a steward of the money that God has given you. Blessing, um, really the blessing of God. You're not paying God, but you're uh, contributing to the community of faith. And we should, we should seek to give more and more and not less and less because uh, the less you give, the, the, the more you're stealing from God. Another way that we rob God is to fail to give him the best of our time and of our talent. Scripture says that God, um, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. So when you waste your time and not use the, the gifts that God gives you in service to the church, but also people around you, then you are robbing the community of faith. You're robbing God. Still, another way is to simply be disobedient. When you know what the Bible says and you don't do it like this eighth command, really all the commands, um, we're bowing down to an idol. We're stealing from God instead of worshiping him as the true God. And so, folks, I mean, are, we, are you a thief? How might you be stealing from God? That's what the commandments would bring out. I don't know if you've noticed this. All these commandments have, the depth of them, have led us to the point where we have to come to some conclusion that, you know what? I can't keep any of these commandments to the depth that the Bible is giving them to me. I am, I am the sinner that the Bible is talking about. I'm the idolater. I'm the one that breaks the Sabbath. I'm the one that uses God's name in vain. I'm the adulterer. I'm the one that just like spews hate and hatred out of my mouth. And the Bible reminds us that as guilty sinners, we all need the gospel. And this is the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus died on the cross and rose again to give salvation to everyone who believes. Jesus died on a cross in the place of sinners. Specifically, Jesus died between two thieves. You ever notice that? Matthew's gospel points out that there was a thief on Jesus' right and on his left. One thief mocked Jesus and said, hey, you're worthless if you don't get us down from this cross. But the other said to Jesus, hey, Lord, um, take me with you when you go to paradise. And Jesus said, you'll be with me. So Jesus dies up on a cross between two thieves. Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone that hangs on a tree. Interestingly, Zacchaeus, we're back to the wee little man. Think about it. Zacchaeus, he couldn't squeeze through that crowd. So what did he do? 
he got, I mean, he climbed up on a sycamore tree. Zacchaeus climbed up in that sycamore tree because he was despised. No one liked him. And in a sense, when Jesus hung on the cross, he was hanging there for people who were despised like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus deserved the rejection that he got. Jesus on the cross absorbed the, the, the rejection and uh, all the hatred that Zacchaeus deserved. And he took it upon himself. Jesus received the curse and the scorn and the shame Zacchaeus deserved and gave him the love and acceptance that Jesus had earned through his perfect life. Jesus traded places with Zacchaeus, and he actually trades places with us. We are the thieves that deserve to be on the cross. But like Zacchaeus, when we see the display of, of God's grace, it can change us from people who, 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 uh, who greatly exploit and steal into people who uh, lavishly and generously live in this life with those who are around us and with God. Let's pray. So, Lord, it's hard to say this, but we, we do steal. We steal in unassuming ways. Sometimes we steal deliberately to gain uh, more money, to gain reputation, to make people like us. Sometimes we cheat the system. And I think it's appropriate for us at this point to, to confess that to you and perhaps to make restitution for that. And so, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon your people here those who are called by your name, who've been bought by your blood and who you've died for, that, uh, that we would, if we're guilty, that we would confess our sin, that we would ask for forgiveness, and, and that we would indeed make restitution where that is necessary. Lord, we thank you that, that you identify with people like Zacchaeus, but more importantly, you identify with people like us who... Who, who deserve really the worst. We deserve to be despised and rejected and unliked by society by, because of our sin. But as you've done for Zacchaeus, you called him out of a tree, you befriended him, came into his home, you brought salvation, and, uh, and you honored a man that did not honor it because he received you as his own. He received your salvation and you changed him. We're praying that you would change us as well. Change us by your word, change us by your gospel, change us by your great grace, change us by your presence, change us by living in us by your spirit, that we would not steal, that we would work, labor hard, enjoy the blessings of God, but more importantly, that we would be people of generosity. We pray that in your name. Amen.